Hi, podcast family. It is Miller. Thanks for tuning in. This week's installment, uh, we give you more of the same. Last week, we looked at overcoming accusation. You have an adversary. He is an accuser. And that voice of accusation often shows up through people that we know, uh, through acquaintances, through those that we have conflict with. And so we looked last week at the power of accusation, how to overcome accusation, how to operate in a different spirit than the spirit of accusation, which is pretty rampant in our culture. So I encourage you to listen to last week's if you didn't. This week, part two is equipping you to have courageous conversations with those you have conflict with. We need to move towards one another, not away from one another. We need to have healthy, constructive conversations around the conflicts, but we need to be equipped to have them in a healthy fashion so that reconciliation can take place. It's the goal, it's the ministry, it's the point. Jesus reconciled us to the Father so that we can operate in reconciliation towards one another. So uh, buckle up, hope you enjoy it, love you. So tonight we're gonna talk about, last week we talked about the spirit of accusation and coming out from underneath it. How many of you were here last week? Raise your hands high, raise your hands very high. Okay, how many of you were not here last week? Oh man, I might need to repriest that message. Um, the, you have an enemy. If you're born again, how many of you are born again? Okay, that's the majority of people. So we'll give an opportunity for uh, you, if you're not born again, to get born again. Um, but if you're born again, you, you, were, you were born into a family, but, but your family has an adversary. There is one uh, who came to still kill and destroy, and he does not like your father, and because you are a son or daughter of this father, he does not like you. Whether you like it or not, there's no neutral ground. And the main weapon that he uses, the main weapon in his arsenal, uh, is the weapon of accusation. Uh, he is known as our adversary. That word could be opponent, but it could also be accuser. And so he accuses day and night. What comes out of his mouth is accusation. And his goal is to get you to listen to the accusations that he's speaking against you. It starts with you. And then he will accuse friends. He will accuse family. He will accuse spouses. He dwells in the realm of accusation. Why? Because he's condemned. If you agree with an accusation, you end up in condemnation. If someone comes and tells you something about me, let's just say me, I'm a public figure, pastor. If someone comes and says an accusation about me and you agree with that, then you will shut your heart off towards me as a leader. And so the goal to accuse leaders specifically is for us to agree so that we can shut off, condemn, and no longer be led by that person that God has ordained to lead. And I'm not saying that, that, that I'm using that, I don't know if that analogy may, may fall short, but just as your pastor, I think the enemy attempts to accuse me. We looked last week at Zechariah 3, and Zechariah 3 is this uh, depiction, that it's an image that Zechariah has of Joshua standing before God and the enemy accusing him. And uh, Joshua represented, uh, the, he was the highest spiritual authority in the nation of Israel, and of course the enemy's gonna accuse him. Of course there's gonna be an accusation. And, uh, and what's, what's, what's interesting is the accusation was actually true against Joshua. It was valid. He was wearing filthy clothes, but the Lord's narrative was greater than the enemy's accusation. And so the Lord rebukes the accuser and then he clothes Joshua. Uh, so I, I want you to be aware of the power of accusation and the enemy's strategy uh, to, to accuse. Uh, and I want you to come out from underneath it. Um, in Revelation 12, it says, this is the end time church, uh, it talks about the accuser has been thrown down, but it says that they, meaning the end time church, has overcome the accuser by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So that's an awesome scripture to go, yeah, by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, we overcome, but we overcome accusation. And so let's, let's, uh, let's talk about something else in, in the realm of accusation, but it has to to deal with you resolving conflict because inevitably conflict will come up. The closer you get to someone, the more you realize they're not perfect and tension, friction exists. And if you're not equipped to rightfully deal with conflict, what you will end up doing is uh, 
is, is severing that relationship. And I think we end up partnering with the voice of accusation against those that we once had conflict with. And it goes unresolved. And because it goes unresolved, you come up with a narrative and they come up with a narrative. Now, I have, I have a degree. Uh, was in school till I was 22. I'm in grad school now. I've, I've taken a lot of class. And I've never been taught how to resolve conflict in a healthy way. And yet, this is probably one of the most important lessons I can give you, especially if you're married. Um, marriage, if you don't know how to deal with conflict, um, your marriage will mirror that because conflict comes up in marriage. And the number of, I mean, pastor, I've spent hundreds of hours with couples counseling them, and it's equipping them to fight fairly. It's equipping them to deal with conflict that inevitably will exist. Because guess what? You, how many of you are single? Most of you? Guess what? You're going to marry the wrong person. And guess what? So are they. <laughs> well, what's my point? There's better, there's better choices than others. I'm not saying that, 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 that you're not going to make a good choice. But inevitably, the further you get down the line, you're going to realize that person is imperfect. You're gonna realize that, that you did not marry Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. You married a sinner. You married someone that's broken, imperfect, and has blemishes. And your ability to navigate those conflicts and tensions will either set you up for success or failure within your marriage. And, and so it shows up in your marriage, but it also shows up in your young adult group. It also shows up in your workplace. It also shows up online. Because this voice of accusation is... is its goal is to separate. Its goal is to divide. You see it in our nation right now. Like cancel culture is the spirit of accusation. We just have a catchy name for it. And it is, it is rampant on social media. It is rampant anywhere you turn. Um, there is this tension and conflict and, and varying opinions that are clinging gongs and symbols in our midst. It's not done in the spirit of love. Are you with me? And so tonight, I want to give you just, I want to give you the most practical, practical lesson maybe I've ever given you on how to rightfully deal with relational conflict and to bring reconciliation when those accusations want to push us away. Is that good? Okay. Let's start with number one. You ready? Number one. This is seven keys to resolving relational conflict. Seven keys. You can get out your phone. So you just put a little one there. Let's be note takers. <clears throat> I think one of the hardest things to do when you have relational conflict, again, with, whether it's with a family member, uh, a coworker, it can be a pastor, just fill in the blank. Um, the first thing we want to do is we want to make the first move. We want to take initiative. If, if there has been conflict, if there is need to resolve relational tension with someone in your heart, you need to make the first move. You need to do something with that. Um, there's this saying, uh, time heals all what? You've heard that before. Time heals all wounds. Do you know that time heals absolutely nothing? If, if time healed all wounds, you would go to the doc in the box, you know, like, like, what is it called? Urgent care. You check in and you would just sit there. They call your name and you're like, I'm fine. Time. <laughs> does not heal all wounds. Jesus does. Especially when it comes to your relational wounds. But I want you to know that, that our default is not to deal with the issue. Our default is typically to do one of two things. Um, and there's, there's a way we all have a default in responding to uh, conflict, responding to when someone just gets under our skin. Um, and these, these two traits typically marry one another. Um, these two traits typically find themselves attracted to one another because I, I see spouses and the way that they respond to relational conflict one of two ways. 
They're both animals. There's turtles and there's skunks. So here's what a turtle does. A turtle goes inside their shell. A turtle starts to avoid what's bothering them. Turtles hide. Now skunks do the opposite. Skunks sneak the place up. You know that a, a skunk is upset with you because they make it known. Typically it's through passive aggressive like behavior. You're not certain what's wrong, but you know something is wrong. Am I right? So turtles hide, skunks hurl, but we need to take initiative and we need to take healthy initiative. You know, Jesus wasn't a skunk and Jesus wasn't a turtle. <laughs> Jesus was a lion from the tribe of Judah. <laughs> and, and listen, he, as the lion from the tribe of Judah, he took initiative. It says in Revel uh, Romans chapter five, that when you were an enemy of his, he reconciled you to his father. He took initiative. He didn't set up a 50-50 like scenario. He went all in. He went all in. If you don't know God tonight, the Bible says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And it's like, well, I need to do something to get right with God. And God goes, no, there's nothing you could do to get right with me. So I did it all for you. I went all in. I took initiative to bridge the gap that was between me and you. The accusation was true, but I actually took on your accusations. I took initiative to do what you could not do. And I became like you. I met you where you're at. I fully went into your muck, your mire. I became sin so that you could be the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. This is the, the motivation of love. <laughs> It doesn't seek its own. And so when we take initiative, we're, we're, we're taking initiative because love compels us to. Love compels us to. Love compels us to be right. As long as it's within your power to make things right, love compels us to take initiative and to do something about the conflict. It's so crucial that you, you, you understand that you need to own you. You can't own what they did. But if something has happened to you, you need to take initiative and acknowledge what has happened to you. And you gotta do something about it because time won't heal it. It won't simply go away. It, it might get easier over time. It might get easier over time. But what I've learned is that, is that I have to own me. <laughs> and if someone has wounded, if someone has hurt, if someone has done something to me, I can't just grit my teeth and get through it lest it's gonna show up in my other relationships. And so I realize with a topic like tonight, for some of you, there may, have, there may be conflicts that are decades old. There may be generational conflicts that you've inherited. And I'm not saying that here's the seven keys to make every relationship perfect. That's not the goal. It's not even, it's not realistic because not everyone is healthy enough to actually come to a table and have a healthy conversation. But you as a born again believer, if he lives inside of you, you can take courage and take initiative to one, present your heart before the Lord and two, to find other believers that can help you get wholeness in your heart. It's the wellspring of your life. And relationships take a toll. Like the older I get, the more I realize this, this teaching is so needed in the body of Christ. It's so needed. So you've got to take initiative. You've got to take initiative. Uh, the Bible says this. It says, it, like if someone does something that hurts and it makes you angry. Let, let's, just, let's just talk about this. If you're angry about something, you need to take initiative about your anger. Because you will be wronged in life. You will be wronged in life. If you haven't been wronged, I'm not certain what kind of life you've been living. <laughs> you will be wronged in life. People will do things that hurt you and they will make you angry. And do you know that anger is not a sin? It's not. What you do with your anger though can result in sin. And, and Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 26. Are you guys with me? This is, hey, listen, this teaching, if you can tap into it, I know typically we're, we talk about a number of topics, specifically the presence of God, God resting here, like 
we're one-trick ponies at the upper room. We, we talk about ministering the Lord, ministering the Lord. Tonight, we're going to talk about ministering the Lord. Tonight, we're going to ministering the Lord. What are we doing tonight? Ministering the Lord. Like, I get it. I get it. And, and that's been an assignment. But, but this teaching, this teaching is so vital in us loving one another, in us establishing a witness in the community that we're above the accusations. In the religious community, we're above the accusations. Within friend groups, I want to equip you to live above that. Okay? So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, be angry. Everyone say, be angry. Be angry. That's crazy. I thought angry was, was a sin. But Paul says you can be angry. Because there's things that will happen to you that will make you angry. Angry is a natural emotion to an injustice. Anger is a natural emotion when someone hurts you or when you see someone hurting someone. It is a natural emotion. And so you can be angry, but he's very clear. And yet do not sin. What would the sin be? I think he gives us some intel in the next phrase. He says, do not, in the next instructions, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So that means that in your anger, in a moment, if someone does something to you that makes you angry, you need to deal with it in the day that you got angry. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That means, that means don't, don't fall asleep angry. You need to deal rightly with it. Because if you go to sleep with that anger and it's unchecked, here's what Paul says in verse 27. He says that you give the devil an opportunity. You give the devil a foothold. You give the devil a foothold. Why? Because anger is a terrible motivator. J James would say in James 119, he says, um, actually it's 120. He says, well, 119 is be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then it says this about anger. It says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So here's what happens in a day. Someone does something to you and you're like, dude, that pissed me off. That hurt, and that hurt a lot of people, and I'm angry about it. And so what we do in being wronged is we attempt to make it right. But the Bible says that anger as a motivator to make something right will not achieve God's definition of righteousness. Okay, let's, let's take you out of this scenario. Let's look at culture for a second. Let's look at culture. Um, there are injustice, like the, the topic of Gen Z. I know we have a lot of Gen Zers. Your generation is looking for a cause, and I love it. I think, I think the cause for your generation is revival. I really do. I think we got just a, I think we got just a little bitty taste, and I would put millennials in this. I think millennials are the forerunners for Gen Z. All right, so I, I know who I'm speaking to tonight. I know who I'm speaking to tonight. But, but your generations are looking for a cause to give themselves to. They're looking for something to give themselves fully over. You, you look at the movements that have set uh, in our nation from the Me Too movement, which exposed a lot of sexual abuse and um, just men in, men in positions particularly that abuse their, their authority. Um, and I thank God that a lot of that got uncovered and women spoke up. That was a Gen Z thing. That was a millennial thing. You look at uh, Black Lives Matter. You see this injustice that took place uh, specifically with George Floyd. I'll never forget seeing that on my phone. It angered me when I saw what those police officers were doing. It just, just the 60 second clip, not knowing any more details, anger arises inside of your heart because you're watching an injustice. And so what happens is as these injustices cultural injustices hit the landscape of our nation, anger manifests in the masses. And what do we do? We attempt to make a wrong right. But the Bible says the anger of man will never produce the righteousness of God. So our definition of righteousness is so far from God's definition of righteousness. Like, uh, take, take the, um, I would even say the, the issue of sexuality or gender, um, that, that can fit into the conversation of justice. What is just and what is unjust? 
And so what happens is political guys get up and they attempt to define this is what's just for an eight-year-old who's a boy who feels like they're a girl. It's an injustice that we won't allow them to do X, Y, and Z. And so in that anger for the eight-year-old, this thing comes up and we attempt to make it right, but it just makes it worse because we're confused because there's no true authority for justice or righteousness outside of the reign of Jesus. It's under the reign of Jesus and the authority of Jesus that we get justice and righteousness because those are the foundations of his throne. So I want you to view culturally when you see an injustice that produces anger in that moment, you've got to take initiative. You've got to do something with it in the day because anger ages like milk. <laughs> anger, anger spoils. Anger sitting in your heart will make your soul sour. This is Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 14. Check this out. It says, pursue peace with all men. So, so our goal is to pursue peace. I'm giving you tools and how to pursue peace. Take initiatives, the first one. Pursue peace with all men and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord and see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Coming up short of the grace of God is you not dealing with anger because the root of anger is bitterness. And a root of bitterness will spring up and it causes trouble for you and people around you. Many are defiled by a heart that's bitter. This is what happens when in a day you're confronted with your anger. If you don't deal with it in that day, a root of bitterness will spring up. And we need to repent of bitterness. We need to repent of aged anger by forgiving those that have wounded us and hurt us. So we have to take initiative lest our hearts will get wonky. Say, so don't let your heart be wonky. So love, love is the motive. Uh, love is the motive. Love is the motive. And so taking initiative, you're taking initiative because love compels you to. <clears throat> Romans 12, 18 says this. It says, uh, and this is the key to initiating specifically with another person that's, that's, that's hurt you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Be at peace with all people. So take initiative with someone that has hurt you. Take initiative with someone that, where there's been rub, conflict, um, where there's been misunderstanding. Like if, if, if you see someone, this is when you know you need to take initiative. If, if that person walks in this room and you start to manifest internally, you're like, I gotta avoid them. I don't wanna talk to them. I don't wanna see them. If that's going on in your heart, you need to check your engine light <laughs> because it's blinking and you need to take initiative. Doesn't mean you need to run to them and give them a hug and be like, hey, let's talk right now. I'm gonna give you more keys to this, but you need to realize that is an indicator that you need to do something about that because it won't stop with that one relationship. It never does. Say, this is good, Michael. Thank you. I need encouragement tonight. Strengthen your servant, Lord. Um, so take initiative. Uh, number two, in taking initiative, you need to bring the person and the problem into the presence of the Lord. You need to bring the person and the problem into the presence of the Lord. You need, I don't just, you don't just, I, I, I didn't say pray about it. You need to get in environments where the presence of the Lord is manifesting and you need to allow the Lord to begin to x-ray your heart. You need to allow the Lord to begin to just do what only he can inside of you. We bring it into the presence of the Lord. We start with ourselves. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the next point. Um, the presence of the Lord will give us leverage. And, and typically the presence of the Lord will give us the divine narrative, the heavenly narrative over the situation. And the divine narrative and the heavenly narrative is so different than the narrative that we start to live by once a wound sets in. When we come into the presence of the Lord, uh, we're coming into the presence of the Lord to receive something from the Lord on behalf of this issue. So I mentioned this last week, it's in Luke 22. Uh, Jesus had conflict. It was, the, it, was, it was Passover, it was the night before 
uh, or the night he would be betrayed, the night he would be uh, wrongfully uh, dragged away from the Garden of Gethsemane and tried. He would be crucified. He would be flogged. He would be murdered. And one of his friends would betray him, but another friend would deny him. Another friend would deny him. What's your name? Kevin. Evan. All right, that's a good name. Evan, I'm Michael. So let's just say that you're Peter in this situation. And it's the night of Passover. And I'm telling you, as Jesus, I'm like, hey, listen, um, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And Evan, who is Peter, is like, it's not going to be me. Lord, I will never desert you. And then I look at you, Peter, and I go, hey, listen, Peter, not only will you desert me, but tonight, three times, you're going to deny me. Before the rooster crows, so before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me. But then this is what Jesus tells Peter. Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, but I've prayed for you. And when you repent, strengthen your brother. Jesus was living from the divine narrative over Peter's life who would deny him that night. Like Jesus didn't take arms and be like, don't do it. (laughs) He said, after you do it, after you return, I've seen who you are. You're going to strengthen your brother's. Because you're going to preach the first sermon, Acts 2. Jesus saw the end from the beginning for Peter, and he knew that that moment didn't define who Peter was in the eyes of the Father. And we need to bring these issues into the presence of the Lord because these issues want to define relationships. They want to define your perspective and your pain. And then the Lord wants to flush that out, and the presence of the Lord does that. So we bring it into the presence of the Lord. I, I, uh, when we planted... Um, upper room. It was in the homosexual district of downtown Dallas. Um, does anyone know what the homosexual district is known for in Dallas? Or the Oakland district's known for homosexuality. I just gave it away. Um, if you go, if you go to Oakland, sorry, this is, this is, this is sermon number three. If you go to Oakland, if you go to Oakland tonight, instead of having like normal white stripes on the crosswalk, it's rainbow colored. Uh, you see the rainbow flag everywhere. It is apparent that this neighborhood is different than any other neighborhood in the city of Dallas. It is, it is the gayborhood. That's what it's been, been coined. And so we planted Upper Room in the gayborhood. We planted it in Oaklawn. We had a coffee shop called Oaklawn Coffee. A third of our clientele were homosexuals. We were in the community. And we were mainly ministering to Jesus and worshiping the Lord. But I gained a reputation within the evangelical church as someone who had kind of cracked the code in this community that so many people were heartbroken over and trying to reach. And so people would come and uh, they would talk to me about a relative or they would talk to me about a friend who uh, came out and had left a church or had become argumentative online. And so they would ask me for wisdom and ask me for advice. And I remember there was this one guy uh, and he was heart. Uh, he was charged about this relationship and it was someone in a very large church, probably if I said the church, most of you would know the church in the Metroplex. And this, this guy that I was talking to was a leader in their young adult community and the guy that had come out online used to be a leader in the community and he was posting uh, comments and posting theology that was contrary to this guy's belief. And so they were via Facebook having this argument so that everyone could see it in public. In fact, this guy uh, who was meeting with me had gone to the apologetics department of this church and they had helped him craft answers on Facebook to combat what this brother was saying. And so he was like, could you help me in this dialogue? Could you help me with truth? Could you help me represent the church online to what's happening. And I said, yeah, I'll help you. Can I ask you one question? He said, sure. And I said, have you cried? Have you shed tears for this brother? He goes, what do you mean? I said, has your heart broken over the issue? And he said, no. I said, then take your Facebook post down and find God's heart. Find God's heart for this brother. Find his compassion. Find, find his zeal. Find his strategy, because it's apparent you haven't, and you're attempting to win an argument. And last time I was on Facebook, which was over a decade ago, I haven't seen anyone win an argument on that platform. That goes for any of them. I've never seen someone go, oh my gosh, you know what, you're right. 
You're right, I've never thought of that. That, that is, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So let him do a work in you first. We gotta bring things into the presence. I remember I was in a ministry situation and there was a guy that, that had a different, a, a hard, like, other side of the spectrum theology than I did. And uh, we were in a weekly prayer meeting. And this weekly prayer meeting became, it became this time where, where it would always end up in this religious argument. And I hated it. I could not stand going to this prayer meeting because this guy was there. And uh, uh, it just got gnarly. And, and they would come with their guns loaded. And I just, I just didn't like it. And I remember telling the Lord I had to go to this meeting because of, of, of who I was employed by and where we were at. And I said, Lord, I cannot keep doing this. Lord, I am so worn out. I'm weary of this relationship. Lord, I, and I'm sounding off to the Lord. Blah, 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 you know, I'm going for it. And then all of a sudden, in my mind's eye, I have an image of this guy. I I was losing sleep about it. It was just a hard, hard relationship. And the image that I had as I was praying and sounding off, it's just my imagination, I saw this guy as like a five-year-old. And he was wearing an oversized tank top. And he was flexing his muscles at me. And I felt like the Lord said, this is what he's doing. He's just a little child. And he's attempting to flex his muscles towards you. And the next time I saw that guy, I actually just wanted to kind of pick him up and hug him. <laughs> I like, only had this compassion for him. of like, oh my gosh. I realized that you're just attempting to flex him. And it disarmed my perspective of this brother. What did I do? I brought him to the presence of the Lord. He didn't know anything changed, but everything internally towards him did. We have to bring these things into the presence of the Lord. It, it, it's, it's what he, he, he does so well is disarm us. So, okay, number one, make the first move. Number two, you gotta bring it to the presence of the Lord. And number three, as you're approaching this person, so this, this is resolving conflict. As you take initiative, you bring into the presence of the Lord and then you schedule a time and place where you're gonna meet with this person. One of the things that we need to do is we need to start with ourselves. You have to take ownership. You've gotta own you. Negotiators say this about conversations, whether it's in, in like a, a, a sales situation or even in conflict, that the first three minutes of a conversation determine the outcome. So we need to frame uh, the conversation for a desired outcome. And, uh, and here, here's what I've learned in the first three minutes of a conversation. If I'm having a, a courageous conversation with someone, if it takes a lot of courage to come to a table and to, to acknowledge a conflict, here's what I always wanna do. I always wanna start with myself. It, it may be from my perspective, 99.9999999999% their issue. But if I can find the point one that's mine and I can begin there, it disarms them. I wanna start with me. I don't want to accuse them and I don't want to excuse myself. I, I remember I was talking to Mike Bickle. Mike Bickle leads uh, the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Just a phenomenal father and leader who has been, uh, he has been at the end of religious persecution and false accusation, maybe as much as anyone that I know. In the late 90s, early aughts, um, the enemy just attempted to do a number on him. And, and, and behind closed doors, I've asked him about how he dealt with literally like global false accusations. And, and Mike, Mike said this, Mike, Mike was so humble. He's so tender. And after, you know, 30 plus years of, of, of navigating this, he said, I try to, I try to see if there's any truth in an accusation made about me. I try to learn from it. I try to own it. I try to, I try to examine myself first and repent of what I can repent of. And I was like, dude, I would first get really mad. He's like, no, no, no. It's not about getting mad. It's about you figuring out what you can own. And, and so I ask these kind of questions. I say, am I being unrealistic? Am I being ungrateful? Am I being oversensitive? Am I being too demanding? You know, the, the number one issue in a marriage is, for divorce is incompatibility. And, and that's, a, that's actually a made-up term that divorce lawyers use as, a, as, as grounds for divorce, but incompatibility basically means this, I couldn't get over myself. <laughs> I didn't start with me. And, 
Beloved, you, you, many of you are single and you're looking for the right one and you'll probably find them in this room. So many of you are pretty. You're passionate about God. And I found one in a room like this. She was pretty. She was passionate about God. I was goo goo gaga for her and I was engaged and I'm sitting at a barbecue joint in Fort Worth and this mentor of mine, a couple was mentoring us and the girls are talking about the wedding and he looks at me in the eyes and he goes, are you excited about getting married? I was like, I'm so excited. So what do you like about her? I was like, just look at her. She's beautiful. She loves the Lord. I'm stoked. And he goes, can I give you some marriage advice? And I was like, please lay it on me. I want to be a great husband. And he looks at me without missing a beat. And he goes, you see Larissa? I said, yes. She was created to kill you. (laughs) I was like, what? And then he said, as soon as you embrace that reality, you'll experience life and joy and love in ways that you never have. What was he saying? He's saying you gotta get over you. <laughs> and you've gotta own you in this. And again, you won't marry Mr. or Mrs. Right. <laughs> but Jesus, who is right and perfect, is committed to your marriage and he makes things right when we learn to follow him as couples. Uh, James 4.1 says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you it says that don't they come from the desires that battle within you? So it's within you. There's something within that causes fights and quarrels. <clears throat> I've got some other great marriage advice, but I'll save it for later. Once more of you get married in this room. But we need to own ourselves. When we come to that table, it, it, it really disarms that person. Uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's a great phrase. Um, forgive me. It's a great way to start out. Will you forgive me? Will you, will you forgive me? I, I, I may have blind spots in this relationship. I may not see the full picture, but I need to talk to you about our friendship. So, so crucial. So <clears throat> make the first move. We pray, we own ourselves. And then number four, we listen to understand before seeking to be understood. We listen to understand before seeking to be understood. Uh, We come to this conversation to learn. We come to this conversation to connect. And the way that we connect is by asking the right questions and seeking to understand their perspective. Um, Again, James 1.19 says, everyone must be quick to hear. Everyone say quick to hear. So if you're quick to hear, those are your ears. And it says slow to speak. You're slow to speak, that's your mouth. And then it says, and be slow to anger. And what I've learned is if if I put the first two in action, it helps me with the third. I never get to the third. If I listen more than I speak, I typically don't get angry. I think it's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. We're to listen twice as much than we are to speak. You've got to use your eyes and your ears. They're, They're love organs. They communicate. Get off your phone. Get present with someone. And say, I'm here to understand why you did what you did. Why you said what you said. Could you please help me understand that? The reason this is important, I feel like this is kind of like glossing over in some ways. But I want to tell you again why I think this is important. Uh, If we don't have these tools within the body of Christ, there's two trajectories according to my eschatology at least, Matthew 24 uh, and John 17. John 17 says in the end days, there's gonna be a glory resting on the church that's going to be supernatural and it's gonna provide a unity that the world is gonna witness and be provoked by. And I think there's millions moving into this unity of the Holy Spirit, supernatural unity. But make no mistake, there's another trajectory and millions of believers according to Matthew 24, 10, will become offended, they will fall away, they will betray and persecute their brothers. 
There's two trajectories. Millions will go this way and millions will go that way. And I think somehow we just think because we sung the right song at the upper room that we're gonna end up over there. But I am so convicted that you need to be equipped to walk in the spirit of unity, to partner with the Holy Spirit. And this, this will help you. So we seek to understand before we're understood. Philippians 2.4, it's another good scripture. Philippians 2.4, it says, each of you should not look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. It actually says to consider others more important than yourself. And the word for look, each of you should look to the interest of others, not your own interest, but to the interest of others. The word look is scopius. It's where we get the, the, the term microscope. It's to examine something thoroughly. And, and what I've learned to do when it comes to, uh, one, when it comes to my wife, like if my wife's being short, which she's not in here and she's not often short, she's angelic and holy and amazing, but on her bad days, she can be a little short. She can be, you know, a little edgy. And what I attempt to do before I manifest, because I manifest very quickly, is I attempt to just close my eyes and think about her day. What was her day like? Who was she with? Was she with the kid? And, and all of a sudden, that empathy inside of me for her disarms me to meet her where she's at. Why? Because Scopius is looking to the interest of others. Empathy is so powerful. It is, to me, <laughs> empathy is one of the, the, the least exercised virtues in our culture. What is empathy? It's putting, it's putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It's waking up to what they wake up to. It gives you compassion for them. Empathy fuels compassion. I think this is wonderful. All right, so that's four. Only got, only got three more. We're almost there. Number five. When you come to that table and you're seeking to understand, and then when it's time for you to be understood, I want you to remember this. It's not only what you say, but it's how you say it. So we need to speak the truth, but we need to speak the truth in love. We speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians 4.15. But look at this. This is what Jesus said about his father in John 12.49. This is the New Living Translation. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. John 12.49. You got me, Jazz? Look at this. I don't speak, so he's speaking about his words, I don't speak on my own authority. But the Father who sent me, he's, he's talking about the words and the authority of his words, and he describes it two ways, has commanded me not only what to say, but how to say it. So it's not just what Jesus said, it's how he said it. It's the spirit in which he spoke it. I, I could tell you, I could tell you, and I, I saw this, I saw it recently, I went to a concert, and there was this dude outside the concert, and he had this sign, and the sign was true. He was telling people that without Jesus, they're going to perish. It was true. He was talking about eternal judgment that's coming. He was talking about heaven, and he was talking about hell. But you know what he was doing? He was shouting it. You know what he was doing? He wasn't saying it with the spirit of love. He was hitting people over the head like truth was a club. And I guarantee you, Bet a lot of money that not one person came to know the man who is truth named Jesus because of how he was saying it. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. We need to speak the truth, we need to speak the truth in love. It's so, so crucial. Um, the spirit in which we speak disarms. I, 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 are there marriage? So this is a key for marriages. And again, this is good dating advice for the future, but in marriage, you, you, you've got to learn to fight fair. Um, I, I, know, I know spouses that are really good with their words, and they're saying the right thing, but they're saying it in the wrong way. And what, what they're equivalent to in, in, in the word game is they're equivalent to like a bat black belt jujitsu fighter. <laughs> One of those guys. Like Taekwondo. Like, and and when you get into an argument with them, they're saying the right things, but they're, they're saying it from the wrong place. And when, when their spouse is in front of me, they're, they're black and blue. Their heart is because of the spirit in which they spoke. And 
you can be right and you can be totally wrong because of the spirit in which you approach a situation. So we need to, uh, we need to not only say truth, but we need to say truth in love. <clears throat> Number six, in confronting someone, we wanna fix the problem, not the blame. Fix the problem, not the blame. Let's say that together. Fix the problem, not the blame. So if you, fixing the blame is counterproductive. Fixing the blame uh, doesn't solve the problem. It blames the person for the problem. And, and we don't wanna play the blame game. Uh, <clears throat> we wanna look at problems objectively, as objectively as we can. We wanna attempt to set the problem uh, before anyone that we have a conflict with we want to begin to discuss that. So here's typically what that means for me in my marriage. And it also means that I have a, I have a meeting this week. I have a meeting this week. It's, a, it's with a staff member. And, and there's some conflict that needs to be resolved. So here's what I've done. I've stated my intent. And I said, hey, and I'll do this with Larissa. Hey, we need to talk about this problem. I want to inform you. I'm not going to side swipe you. I'm going to tell you what it is. And I want you to come prepared to talk about this problem. So that way, they show up in a proactive fashion to something that I've scheduled, and they know my intent. And my intent is to bring reconciliation to the problem. I'm not blaming you, but we need to work this out. With Larissa and I, it was within our finances. And like back in the day when we were planting up a room, I was selling insurance, and I wasn't doing well with insurance, and I didn't know if up a room was a really hard season, and we were living off of her paycheck. And so we would be in situations where we'd spend money and all of a sudden Larissa was like, do we have enough money for this? And, and then it would turn into this blame game about the upper room, about me, about our finances. And I was like, listen, we've got to schedule a conversation so that we can come to the table proactively to discuss our finances. And when we put that on the table, it disarmed her and the blame game stopped and we started solving problems for our finances. So some of you, you just need to be proactive in solving the problem by removing blame scheduling a conversation, and saying your intent. Are you with me? Yeah. All right, good. So fix the problem, not the blame. <clears throat> and then the last one. Here's the goal. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is not resolution. Resolution means we're gonna solve every problem so that there's no disagreements between us. Resolution is not possible, but reconciliation is. Reconciliation, the goal of reconciliation is bringing connection and peace between you and that individual. It, it involves forgiveness. It involves, uh, it involves bearing with one another in love. It involves believing in one another. It involves being patient, being kind. But ultimately, the key is that forgiveness that's issued. You've been forgiven. This is in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive those who have sinned against us, who have, who have committed offenses towards us. And so forgiveness is so very crucial. So we need to be men and women of reconciliation. Uh, the Lord gave us a ministry, and it's a ministry of reconciliation. This is so central to the gospel. It's so central to what Jesus did for you Jesus, I, I think I could show you how Jesus modeled those seven principles towards us. And he reconciled us back to the Father. He came on a rescue mission, and we're to embody that. He didn't give us the ministry of accusation. He gave us the ministry of persecution. He didn't give us the ministry of anything but reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so be reconciled to one another. That's the goal. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to take your phone out as you grab your communion. Some of you already have your phone. Take your phone out. And I'm gonna pray for you. We're gonna take communion at the end of this. We just have a couple minutes. Can someone hop up on the piano? Hey, most practical sermon you've ever heard from the upper room right there. I promise not to do that next week. <clears throat> This is just a very pastoral word. The Lord told me to batten down the hatches at the upper room. I think a storm's coming. 
I don't know what the storm is, but I feel like it's gonna attempt to divide and conquer. And I want us to acknowledge the accuser in our midst. And when there's conflict and issues in our hearts, we know how to rightfully deal with them. Amen? So you got your phone out. I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit a question for you. I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit a question for you. Lord, do I have, ready? Lord, do I have any unresolved conflict with someone in my life? He's calling. <laughs> all right? We're prophetic people. We all know that. The Lord is calling right now. Is anyone going to answer? <laughs> is anyone going to answer the call? <laughs> Seriously, though, uh, is there any unresolved conflict that I have in my heart towards an individual? Just, just ask. And, and if there is unresolved conflict, man, he's, he's really committed to you answering that phone. If there's any unresolved conflict in your heart, I, I want you to write their name down. You don't have to show this to anyone. I'm not gonna make you do this and like me gonna, you know, now. Are they in your phone? Call them. I'm not gonna do that. But I want you to write their name down. And then... <clears throat> The goal for that relationship is for your heart to get clean, for your heart to be at peace. Now, for some of you, you may have attempted to bring reconciliation. I have some relationships and people won't come to a table. It's okay. But, but I need to bring that relationship to the table of the Lord so that my heart can be clean. And I, I want you to take initiative tonight and ask the Lord, why, why, why is that conflict unresolved? And is there anything you can take initiative in? It might be you bringing into the presence of the Lord like you're doing now. It might be you issuing forgiveness. It might be you issuing just forgiveness. It's like a daily battle. It might mean that you need to make a phone call. It might mean that you need to write a letter. It might mean that you taking initiative would be reaching out. But would you allow the Lordship of the Spirit to bring some type of reconciliation to this conflict. And, and then I just want you to, to, to later tonight, I want you to walk through those steps. I want you to walk through like, Lord, what can I own? Lord, what do I need to understand? Lord, what does reconciliation look like? Lord, how do I fix a problem that's between us? I've been blaming them. Just, just walk through those, those seven moves and see if the Lord would, would compel you to do more so that healing can set forth, not only in your heart, but maybe in theirs. Maybe they need that phone call. Maybe they need that letter. But as long as it's within your power to do it, be at peace with all men. And so, Lord, you've called us to be peacemakers. This is Matthew 5, 9. It's one of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. They're not peacekeepers. They're peacemakers. They enter into chaos, and they somehow bring the Prince of Peace into conflict. It says, for they will be sons and daughters of God. Lord, it's how we're known as your children. We're peacemakers. And so within these relationships, we give them to you and we ask Holy Spirit that you will lead, that you will guide, that you will shepherd every heart in this room into the ministry of reconciliation, whatever that would mean.